things we'll be able to talk about about us personally. Uh, today, we're going to hear again a testimony of not only God's redemption, but how God used a vehicle that we have been blessed to, to use here as a church, the vehicle of Alpha, uh, that God has given us an opportunity in Alpha to sit with folks, build relationships with these individuals who come, have dinner together, share about life, talk about uh, the realities of what it is to walk through life, and then talk about the importance of what the Bible has to say about life. And it's a great environment. If you've not been to Alpha, if you're new to the church and you've never been to Alpha, uh, we encourage folks who are new in the church just to, to come to Alpha. It gives you a chance to get exposed to some relationships and kind of have a heart to hear what we've been teaching in the church and what we see as the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, but most importantly, we want to ask you to invite folks to come. It's been a wonderful encounter for people who are just trying to figure out what Christianity is about and where they are in life right now and ask questions and listen to other people's lives and relate to how they're walking out life. But it's just been an incredible time. And so this morning we have the privilege again just to hear somebody whose life has been touched by Alpha, the people at Alpha, most importantly by the gospel, God's grace. So we're going to hear from Mr. Lester Coe. Come on up, Lester, and share your story with us. I was about 18 years old, uh, my parents were saved. At the time, I didn't know what saved meant. I knew it was something weird, and it scared me a bit. However, thinking back, my parents never seemed more at peace during that or after that time, so I got used to it. And I mean, they had peace during some very difficult times. They'd gone through some financial troubles, and then... When I was 22 and my sister was 23, my beautiful and sweet sister, Denise, um, was diagnosed with cancer. She struggled with it for about six years and passed away at the age of 29. At the time, my parents assured me that she'd received Christ before she passed, and I thought that was great, whatever that meant. But I'll never forget, really, how strong my parents were during her long illness and ultimately in her passing. Janine and I began dating about four years ago, I think. Um, as, as our relationship progressed, we both agreed at her suggestion that we needed to find a church. So we started shopping around, and we went to a bunch of different churches. And Janine's mother was coming to Lakeview, so she invited us to come. From the very first time we came, we loved it. And we started coming back. But of course, we loved it on our terms. At the time, I remember thinking about what type of medications Judy Gambino might have been on. Since she was, <laughs> she was always so friendly and searched us out to say hello and have conversation. It can be uncomfortable when you're used to popping in and out of church and not speaking to anyone. And then there was the singing. That was a little creepy to us. So we thought we'd skip that whole thing. So our usual schedule was we'd arrive about 30 minutes late. No offense to you up there, but we'd pop up into the balcony anonymously, just get the message from Keith or Pastor Peter and get out. Hopefully avoid Judy. (laughs) 
And they started talking about this alpha class. I didn't know what it was, but we'd been coming fairly regularly for a few months, so we thought, when in Lakeview, do as the Lakeviewians do. <laughs> so we said, okay, I guess what we're supposed to do, so we signed up. I did know that the part that they talked about being able to ask questions seemed very interesting to me. I tell you, that first drive, the first Tuesday, the drive here was a long one. This was way out of my comfort zone. We were seated, we ended up being seated at a table right here, front row, and had uh, Matt and Paula Mason as our table leaders. We also had Phil and Liz Widener at our table. And looking back now, we, were, we didn't realize really what kind of superstars we had sitting with us. Um, didn't even get an autograph. But that first alpha was a watershed for me. I remember having a lot of questions in my head. And I remember actually being comfortable after a little while and asking those questions. I remember that I also got answers to a lot of them. But what was different was the fact that it wasn't that I was getting Matt's opinion or Phil's opinion or somebody's opinion, but it always went back to the Bible. And after enough of this, I started thinking to myself, well, maybe this nice book that I've seen you know, in hotel rooms and seen my parents with, um, well, it became something more to me. I went from grabbing it, you know, the first time they hand me a Bible in Alpha, I kind of like I'm ha handling, you know, radioactive material and putting it down. <laughs> I was thinking before I was going to add this real quick, what a guy thing it is, you know, that they're like, well, let's go to Romans, you know, and I'm just like men and we don't like to ask directions. You know, I'm going to sit there for 20 minutes trying to find it, not wanting to ask where Romans is. Anyway. But I went from that point to somewhere in Alpha. I was going home and, you know, I'd be late night in the bathroom reading the Bible for an hour, which is just so foreign to me. Finally, you know, it led to the what I consider the ultimate Alpha question, which is, why didn't anyone ever show me or tell me this before? I found out a lot of things at that first Alpha course. I found out that Jesus was more than some mythological figure. I found out what sin really was and how that applied to my life. I found out about the meaning of words like grace, repentance, salvation, righteousness, humility. I found out that the term born again was not made up by some televangelist. I found out who the Holy Spirit was. And most importantly, I found out that Christianity was not about rules. It was about a relationship. It's not about what more I needed to do, but about surrendering. What I got was information that I never got anywhere else. I became convinced at that first Alpha course, that's Alpha language, that I didn't get in the wheelbarrow. We were, Janine and I were engaged at this time, and we began attending Beta after Alpha, and that was at Franklin and at Loria's house. Not much can be said about these two folks that hasn't already been said, so in the interest of time, I won't. But I will say this about Annette. At some point during beta, and there's a little discrepancy apparently, I don't know if they're here right now, but she says she didn't say these exact words, but this is what I heard. <laughs> what I heard her tell me was, you better get saved before you get married. Pretty simple, straightforward, <laughs> Jamesian advice. 
But I know that that week, I don't know if it was that night or a few days, a few nights later, I got down on my knees next to the bed and I prayed and I surrendered my life to Christ. We invite the next alpha. We invited two friends um, to come with us, and we were seated at Johnny, John, and Tammy May's table. And in many ways, looking back, I think we learned a lot, just as much in many ways as we did the first time around. One of the things that really stood out to me at that time was just the amount of love and care that the maze displayed towards us and the rest of the folks at the table. And I really am still affected by their example. Janine and I were married during that Alpha. I can tell you that our ceremony, we started out planning how it was going to be, how to make it as fun as possible. But it really became a ceremony celebrating becoming one in a covenant with God instead of just being a party, and it made all the difference in the world. We then joined a covenant group led by Mike and Darlene Baddo, who have been wonderful shepherds to Janine and I and to the rest of our, our group. Our, our covenant group has become a family to us, really, and we look forward so much to our time together with our group. And, of course, if you were at the retreat, you know that we have the coolest softball or cabbage ball jerseys. But it's difficult for me to think back to that period before that Alpha because it really seems like a lifetime ago. And in many ways, of course, it was. Scripture tells us that we become new creations, and I know that to be true. I now have that peace and joy that I never, never for a moment ever had. The bad guy tries to steal it sometimes, but I know that he can't. We eventually started coming on time. And we even started sitting down here in the expensive seats. <laughs> As for praise and worship, what I used to call singing, we're now literally disappointed if we miss just the first note of the first song. These days, I'm overwhelmed by many things. I'm overwhelmed by the fact that the Lord saw fit to bless me with this incredible woman in my life. I've watched her grow and blossom into this wonderful, godly woman and wife. She is my constant reminder of what my walk should look like. I'm I'm overwhelmed that I've gone from somebody who chose to skip praise and worship to now being someone who cries like a baby and can't get some words out while I'm singing. It's not a pretty thing to see me sing in Christ alone. I am overwhelmed that Janine and I are blessed to be a part of this wonderful body of believers and that we're able to serve in the hospitality ministry, allowing us now to be those freakish people outside (laughs) that won't let you get away without a smile or a greeting. And it really blows my mind that Janine and I, these two lost puppies sitting right here at Matt and Paul's table about two and a half years ago, are now going on our fifth alpha, our third as table leaders. That our Lord would use us in any way to do his work is overwhelming. Truly I say to you, I was lost, but now I'm found. I am a sinner saved by grace. Thank you.
Got to live through that twice, Lester. Thank you for just encouraging us so greatly. God's grace is amazing, overwhelming, and and worth telling others about, worth giving others an opportunity to experience it as well. And so I really want to encourage all of us to be praying and considering and, and then obeying the Lord's promptings and, and who it is that he would have us to reach out to this particular time around with Alpha approaching and, uh, and step out in faith. Have faith that God is going before you to touch people's lives, to draw them into a, a response that's favorable to an invitation, that it doesn't depend upon a human effort. It's dependent upon a sovereign God to bring people into the kingdom. So you and I are simply walking in agreement with that. And I want to encourage you on your way out today, if you don't have and what in your bulletins this week, uh, pick up Alpha Flyers, take with you to give out, distribute, give God the opportunity to, to bring somebody into the kingdom. Uh, you can register folks online for Alpha. Just go on the, the longest website name in the universe, lakeviewchristiancenter.com. All there, no abbreviations. Uh, you go on site there, you can just register folks online. You can hook up folks that you're talking to online, and, uh, and they can get squared away for Alpha, which is a week from this Tuesday. So we are rapidly approaching, but there still is much opportunity for you to register folks again this time around. All right. Let us venture into the Word this morning. So if you'll open up to Romans chapter 11. If you're a man having a problem finding Romans, Lester will stop and help you before he leaves. (laughs) Romans chapter 11. Your Bible probably opens there by itself now, doesn't it? You just kind of hold it in your hand and it just kind of flops open right there. Yeah. We are going to study just a few verses here. This is a, a transitional element in Romans 11 that is moving from rich doctrinal teaching into application. And so the next few chapters in Romans, Romans 12, 13, 14, uh, really are going to focus in on how do you apply this Christian life? How do you live it out in various categories? And quite often, that's the category that we're interested in. When it comes to modern Christianity, we kind of want to know, how do I put this thing on? How, How did it affect me when I wake up in the morning, get going? But what's leading up to this is so critical and, and so important. And, and Paul really establishes something for us beginning in verse 33 that we're going to hone in on and look at. That's too important for us. But I want us to back up before we get to this first word. Paul's going to open this expression of thought here with the word O, oh, an expression from his heart in the opening part of this verse here. And I really just want to capture that word in this message today. Let me start with Sam Storm's thoughts here. It's in your outline. If you don't have an outline, please know that there are outlines available for you that cover the material. And honestly, we, we, we always, at least Peter and I do, always put more in the outline than, than we can usually get to. And so uh, it's worth use, grabbing an outline just for the stuff we didn't talk about. And so you can have that and take it with you. It's available online as well. Let's read together here a look through Sam Storm's thoughts from Pleasures Ever Forevermore. Listen to this. It says, I believe with all my heart that if the public face of Christianity is going to change, God's people, you and I, must change. And if God's people are going to change, God himself must take steps 
to kindle afresh in our hearts the flame of fascination with who He is, the marvel and the wonder at what He has done and will do. God must restore in His people the mystery and excitement of the knowledge of all that He is for us in Jesus. That alone will enable us to win the war against sin. It grieves me to say this, but the primary reason people are in bondage to sin is because people are bored with God. That's a big statement. That's a strong accusation. But it needs to settle in a little bit. I think in just a moment as we kind of wade through what it looks like for you and I not to be bored, we might find ourselves on the, on the other end of this statement of questioning, am I bored with God? It doesn't mean I'm not saved, but it may mean that I'm very uninformed about the awe and the majesty and the greatness of God. And, and I've become bored by comparison to the level of interest I might have elsewhere. And he uses some words here that I don't think are characteristic of Christianity. If you and I survey Christianity as it exists in the landscape where we live, do words like fascination with who God is, do you find people fascinated with God? I mean, just enamored, fascinated with Him. Or the marvel and the wonder at what He has done and will do. The marvel, it sounds like a Disney commercial, doesn't it? The marvel and the wonder. Ring! Stardust comes and, you know, this... That's not words that we associate with Christianity. This mystery and excitement. You and I are in a time frame where we need to be very concerned with, with what it is that thrills us. And that might be the best place for us to start. Because when Paul gets to Romans 11, verse 33, and he opens up with, Oh, he is not merely teaching some cold, dry doctrine. He is speaking from the heart. There's something going on in this man. He's been affected by something. And it's, it sounds like a, a moan of participation on his behalf that's coming out of him. But let me, let me start here with us with a couple of questions. What is it that, that thrills you? Where do you get your thrill in life? If we, we survey the way in which we live life, we might be able to identify with some of these thoughts. These are a couple of articles. Time magazine. This actually is an old article, but it's a very interesting thought here. It's written back in December of 1990. The title of the article is The Leisure Empire. And it's an article studying how American culture is being exported all over the world and the effect that it's having and the embracement that's taking place in foreign cultures. But what's so revealing about it is... What you're going to find in it is people are loving what they're getting their hold of, but they're loving it because we've already loved it. And we're, we're thrilled by this stuff so much so that it's become a culture. Right? If, you don't, if it doesn't catch on, you don't have a cultural thing to export. But listen to what's in here and listen to what's thrilling humanity today. Just outside Tokyo, 300,000 people troop through Japan's Disneyland each week. While 20 miles outside of Paris, a new city is rising on eight square miles of formerly vacant land. Once Euro Disney Resort opens for business in 1992, forget the Eiffel Tower, the Swiss Alps, and the Sistine Chapel. It is expected to be the biggest tourist attraction in all of Europe. In Brazil, as many as 70% of all the songs played on the radio each night are in English. 
In Bombay's thriving theater district, Neil Simon's plays are among the most popular. Last spring, a half dozen American authors were on the Italian bestseller list. So far this year, American films, mostly action-adventure epics like Die Hard 2 and The Terminator, have captured some 70% of the European gate. America is saturating the world with its myths, its fantasies, its tunes, and dreams. American entertainment rang up some $300 billion in sales last year. What is the universal appeal of American entertainment? Scale, spectacle, technical excellence for sure. Godfather Part 3, Batman. The unexpected, a highly developed style of the outrageous, a gift for vulgarity that borders on the visionary. Driving plots, storylines and narrative, a Tom Clancy hero, or one of Elmore Leonard's misfits, Indiana Jones' strength of character, self-reliance, a certain coarseness, a restless energy as American as Emerson and Whitman. The U.S. is the only country in the world with such a heterogeneous mix uniquely able to invent rap music, Disney World, Las Vegas, rock and roll, Hulk Hogan, Hollywood, and Stephen King. And you realize when you look in America, that's, that's America. And that's what we're exporting, so there's no question. That's what's being lived. What a diverse bunch of thoughts that we have gotten thrilled by. The amount of time and money the average post-adolescent American spends in the thrall of entertainment remains astounding. 40 hours and $30 a week on entertainment. Americans... This year, we'll spend some $35 billion on records, audio, videotapes, and CDs. In the air-conditioned Nevada desert, the opening of two gargantuan amusement centers dedicated to gambling and show business, the Mirage and Excalibur Hotels, is leading Las Vegas toward its biggest year ever. In Nashville, the country music business is keeping the local economy afloat amid a tide of regional recession. Felix Rohatton. The fiscal doctor says the only hope for New York City, laid low by the collapse of the boom-boom Wall Street economy of the 80s, is to turn it into a tourist attraction keyed to entertainment. In Japan, too, where the influence of American entertainment is pervasive, the misgivings are growing. Now listen to this, because this is where something is being given away here. Something's being lost, not just for us, but also in other people in other parts of the world. But it tells us about ourselves. Younger people are forgetting their native culture in favor of adopting American culture, says Hisayo Kanaski, a professor of American literature in Tokyo. They're not going to see no theater or kabuki theater. They're only interested in American civilization. Young people, are have, young people here have stopped reading their own literature. Now, what is important and significant about that is that America is a thrill factory. And that's what it is. When you look at, at what's being exported, it's a thrill factory. And there's very few things that can compete with the thrill factory. So if you're in Japan and you've been raised with strong traditional family loyalties and ties, it's no match for the thrill factory. Thrill factory comes over and now you don't want to hear about any of that stuff. You want to be thrilled. You and I live in the thrill factory. And what a challenge it is for you and I to find our thrills outside of what the world, what American culture is, is programming us to find thrilling. You and I are wired to be thrilled, by the way. 
That's God has put that in us. We are wired to be in awe of something. And we love the sensation of experiencing that awe. The problem is American culture is providing the awe, the wow, the thing that grabs our attention, that the sensual dynamics that touch us in such a way that, that we come back for more. Right? It's not just an entertainment issue. Right? Here's, a, here's a magazine article, Time Magazine. It was the cover story back in June. It was, the article was on obesity. The entire feature was on obesity. How we grew so big is the title of this article. It's hardly news anymore that Americans are just too fat. <laughs> if the endless parade of articles, TV specials, and fad diet books weren't proof enough, or you missed the ominous warnings from the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the American Heart Association, a quick look around the mall, the beach, or the crowd at any baseball game will leave no room for doubt. Our individual weight problems have become a national crisis. Even so, the actual numbers are shocking. Fully two-thirds of U.S. adults are officially overweight, and about half of those have graduated to full-blown obesity. Now, why do I highlight that? Because it is such a prolific problem. The reason is because we find food thrilling. I mean, it's, it's a taste bud delight out there. Uh, people don't eat what's good for them. They don't, they don't eat food through that kind of an arena. It tastes good. And so we just want more of it. And the article is real big on the portions and the sizes of how much we eat and, uh, versus other places in the world. But you and I are living in an environment that where you know, the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil are not serving up a world that is going to give us our thrill in God. And you and I are never going to escape this reality, this side of heaven. Being thrilled with God is an acquired taste. That thing that, that Sam Storms mentioned, fascination with who he is, that is an acquired taste. It's not something that naturally occurs. Now, I don't know, maybe you've acquired a taste for something, and it was a food that you used to just couldn't stand, but you, over time you acquired a taste for it. You know, when other people eat that thing, they sit down, they take a bite, and it's kind of like, oh, how do you eat this? Well, that person kind of was in that arena a little bit too, but they acquired a taste for that, and all of a sudden they began to grow to like it. Well, you know, being able to stand where Paul stands in Romans chapter 11, before God and go, oh, over God. That's an acquired taste. And if you and I think that we're going to drift into that, we are extremely misled. There will be no drifting into godliness. There will be no drifting in this fallen world, sin-saturated world, fallen fleshly bodies that you and I live in, will not, if you take your hands off the controls, they will not drift into awe of God. They will drift into awe of American pop culture. They will drift into the next bite of cheesecake coming down my way. They're going to drift in that direction. And so uh, we need to be wise about the condition of the thrill factor that's in our hearts. A couple of thoughts here. A.W. Tozer mentioned, and I put it under the heading of my concern over O-less Christianity. Christianity that lacks a sense of awe of God, amazement with Him and what He's done. Dr. Tozer says, The message of this book, and this book was quoting is from his uh, Knowledge of the Holy, 
message of this book does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as He is. This is a concept that escapes us. We, We tend to think... Uh, and we live in a world this way, and churches are turning into this, church messages that are preached are turning into this. We, we love the, the, the concept of, you know, quick tips for a better me. Give me one of them messages, quick tips for a better me. How can, how can I have, how can I be? Give me some quick tips. But see, the Bible's not quick tips for a better humanity. It's not, that's not what it is. The Bible is a book featuring the person of God. The Bible, this is, this is going to rock your world. You ready? The Bible... It's about God. Now, I know sometimes you have a hard time realizing that when you listen to some people preach things from it. But the Bible's about God. It's intended to draw our attention always back to Him. It's not, you know, wow, He walked on water. Water held Him up. Wow. No, you know, the wow is not about the ability of water to hold a man up. That, that's not what the story is about. It's about the God who can make water hold a man up. It's supposed to draw our attention back to Him so we say, wow, God is awesome. You know, when you look at creation, all that God has made, I mean, I, I, since I've been a child, I've been enamored with hurricanes. And so we, we, just, we always just studied hurricanes. My wife got to a point where she's kind of like, do, do you really need to hear what Bob Breck has to say? Again, you know, uh, I just want to hear more. There's, there's something about the power of this thing. I heard somebody say the other day, the, the mechanical power in, in 24 hours of Hurricane Ivan, the mechanical power contained in that storm was a, enough to light the entire country for six months. And it just got unleashed. It just, just gets unleashed and it just destroys things all around it. But you and I look at that and, you know, if you're like me, you watch way too much of the news this week and just you know, couldn't get enough of, wow, look at what a hurricane can do. Unbelievable. I've been on that beach. Wow. Uh, you know, there's elements in that the Bible reveals things about life so that you and I can go, you think that's power? No, no, no. That's power. Let there be light. And I don't know what it sounded like in the next moment when God simply spoke and all of creation spun into existence in that moment. You know, let things appear. This is is universe stuff. We're talking a little bitty storm that blew up on Gulf Shores, you know. It it was just 
what, 100 miles, 150 miles from us? And what, we got a little breeze? That's it. But we're impressed by the power of that thing, aren't we? But, but how much more so, instead of being, wow, about a storm, is that to, intended to direct our attention toward God who governs the universe? You guys know what a black hole is in the, in the, in the cosmos out there? Black hole is like a hurricane sucking entire galaxies inside of it. And there's a God who's over all that, who's not intimidated by it one bit. He'll turn the lights off on it in an instant. And this God ought to have us going, wow. But, you know, I'm wild by Bob Breck's report. You know, that was wild enough for me. So we need to kind of tune up and adjust our O factor a little bit. Sam Storm says, what does this have to do with holiness? What does this have to do with my struggle with sin? Why spend time and energy on the character of God and Jesus? The answer is easy. It is so that you will walk around spiritually dazed with your mouth wide open and your eyes bulging from your head. Why? Because spiritually stunned people are not easily seduced by sin. People in awe of God find sin less appealing. When you are dazzled by God, it is hard to be duped by sin. When you are enthralled by His beauty, it is hard to become enslaved by unrighteousness. Well, that's where we find Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul has just come through a long discourse we've studied through, beginning really in the last few chapters, but we'll see today all of Romans is this. The last few chapters have been some of the most challenging passages that perhaps many of us have waded through. In the Bible, the sovereignty of God, human responsibility, how this all knits together, the nation of Israel, the remnant within the nation, the purposes of God unfolding, in the end, how God brings back. All this stuff has been set before us and can leave our heads swirling. But what it did for Paul was it gave him a big picture of God from which comes this pronouncement right here. Verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. In this moment, Paul is, is stopping after 11 chapters of Romans. His breath has been taken away. He has looked at something that has left him in awe. And there's a sense of oh coming out of his heart and out of his life. Now, title today's message, you have to catch the, uh, the elements in the title there. Romans. <laughs> I stole that from Sam Storms. Look at this thought. He says, so where did this apostolic O come from? And why is it so important that you and I feel it deep down in our own spiritual bones? It assuredly must have come from Paul's reflections and meditations on the truths of Romans 1 through 11. It had been built up in Paul for 11 chapters and finally burst forth in this hymn of adoration. See, the very core of you and I arriving at a point of great worship 
is, is revelation, is understanding. You know, I appreciated what Lester shared about his testimony. You know, when you, when you, I know I'm going to step on somebody's toes here, but if the shoe fits, please put it on and wear it. Um, at the heart of a disinterest in worship is the revealing that we don't know God well enough. You know, when Lester talks about, you know, we came, we came for the word, uh, we, we, the singing thing was creepy. And so, you know, we didn't come for that. We intentionally tried to miss that, but we wanted to show up for the Word. Well, I am grateful that after showing up for the Word long enough, you don't want to miss worship any longer. Because when you, when you get a revelation of God, worship is the destination. That's where God's trying to get. God provides, God provides 11 chapters of Romans to get us to Romans 11.33 that we might go, Oh, what a God! Not so you and I can debate, fight over, well, is it sovereignty or is it free will? You know, what's up? Uh, you know, is it, is it worse? Is it this? You know, we're fighting over these doctrines. You know, let's you and I have the air let out of us with a gasp of, oh, then let's debate. But let's make sure we have first arrive at the place of God's incredibleness. Now, we'll say some people can't debate well because their theology is so poor that it doesn't bring them to the point of, oh, they figured God out. They've got him in their pocket. Oh, yeah, well, sovereignty and free will work just like this. There's no O in you because your God's too small. If you figured him out that easy, he's too small. You need a God who's much bigger that when you read through Romans 9 through 11, you back up and you go, like Paul, you put your pen down after you've written 11 chapters of Romans and you've got to come up for air because you're back and going, wow, that's who God is. And you and I need that as, as an element of worship. John Stott says, It was the tremendous truths of Romans 1 through 11 which provoked Paul's outburst of praise. The worship, listen, the worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. For there's a lack of worship, the lack of envisioning, invoking, and informing. There's been a lack of revelation. I've not seen much about God. If I don't find myself in an arena of worship, in a place where my heart goes, oh, about what I'm discovering in the Word, then I'm really just discovering the words in the Word, not the God in the Word. And so I, I need a revelation. I need 11 chapters of revelation so that I can stand before God and worship Him. That's what His desire is. Worship without theology... Theology would be our belief about God, our doctrine about God. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Hence the indispensable place of Scripture in both public worship and private devotion. It is the Word of God which calls forth the worship of God. On the other hand, there should be no theology Without doxology. Doxology is a word for worship. There should be no doctrine that doesn't end up in worship. There should be none of this egghead discovery of ideas and concepts that we call doctrine that don't evoke something in us to let the air out of us. In humility to stand before God and say, Wow, oh, get out of my way. I need to get on my knees before God like this. Those who who have written books and are unaffected, I, I don't know what's happening there. 
I don't know how we can show up week in and week out in churches all over this country and hear information about God and have our worship be lacking expression and amazement and undoing of us. It's indicative that we're storing up information rather than aiming at the God that this is revealing. There's a God being revealed. There's 11 chapters of God being revealed in Romans when we get to this point where Paul has the air let out of him. Let me go back to this word, though, and clarify something here about the word worship. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. The worship of God. What, what, what is worship? It's a word today. It's overused. It's used in contexts that, that obscure its meaning. People today, all over this country, people have gone to a worship service. If you drive by a church and you look on their, their church billboard, worship service times. I'm not sure that qualifies for the use of the word worship. Worship is, is, is a deep effect upon our lives. It is not a casual, distant encounter with something. It'd be very easy in churches all over this country, be very easy for us this morning to have come here to a worship service and not worshiped. Most indicatively, it would be a reflection of how we've lived our lives this week leading up to this time. You might cheat definition for worship. It's a concept that needs to be applied only to areas that deeply interact with us. Don't, don't use the term in areas where it loses its meaning. If there's no deep interaction, I don't believe there's worship taking place. Areas in our lives that fail to contain preoccupation, anticipation, preparation, contemplation, areas that don't contain those kind of elements don't qualify for worship. Areas that don't contain reflection and reminiscing, Areas that don't contain expense and sacrifice. Areas that don't contain emotion and engagement don't qualify for worship. They might be something, but worship is not what they are. Worship has that O factor in it. It's got that O element to it. It's not simply, well, we we sang worship choruses. Choruses in and of themselves are not worship. Singing them is not worship. Oh, responding to the greatness of God, that is worship. You know, when that happens, it has these words in it. Preoccupy, you get preoccupied with God. You get anticipating God. Now, this is where we go back to that article, the Time Magazine article. Let's be honest. Let's let's be revealing about what God would have us to encounter. He made us a certain way to be able to anticipate, to be preoccupied, to be absorbed in something. The problem is we're absorbed in the wrong things. Preoccupied with our problems, intimidated by them, overwhelmed, thinking about them, planning all of our imaginary activities in response to, well, if that goes wrong, then this, and then that, and then that will probably go wrong because it always does. And, then, and, and we just are preoccupied. That's a form of worship. That's touching me a whole lot deeper than perhaps a worship chorus is. You know, if, if any of us here are planning a vacation, I'm not knocking vacations, interested in a vacation myself, um, if any of us are planning a vacation, like you're, 
you finally have got the big trip going to Disney World or something. Um, nobody shows up for that trip. You know, you kind of like you just find your car just driving through the gates of the Magic Kingdom or whatever into the parking lot. And, and do, all of a sudden it just dawns on you. Check that out. We're in Disney World. How about that? Man, it just kind of just kind of popped up. I, I didn't bring money. I've got. Uh, I'm, I, I don't even know where we're staying. What would we do? No one does that, do they? When, when you make reservations, when I was a kid, uh, my parents took us to Disney World every year when we were little. About a month out from your reservation, you started getting this monsoon of mail from Disney. Uh, everything possible to be done there, reservations, how to go about it. Well, of course, you're looking forward to going, so you're wading through all this stuff. And you're anticipating going on this ride, being a part of that thing, having this thing done. You're meditating on, you're contemplating, you're making plans, you're making arrangements. There's expense involved, there's sacrifice, you're taking time off work, you're, you're planning your routes, you're going to pay a lot of money for this thing. This is engaging our hearts. There is affection going on here. That's a whole lot closer to worship than what we call worship, isn't it? And when you, when you come back, you know, you've got all those, you've taken pictures. And why do you take pictures? Because you like to reminisce about your trip. You know, the picture with Winnie the Pooh and Mickey. And, and you come back and, and you, you gather together all the other Disney cult people. And you throw your stuff and, oh, oh, and they kind of look at oh, and they're thinking, they're reminiscing about their trip to Disney and there's recollection taking place, right? This is interacting with us. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to have life interact with us. Please don't get me wrong. What I am saying is sad is that our interaction with God doesn't sound that way. We, we come to a worship service kind of like arriving in the parking lot. The car drove itself here. Um, we, we grabbed our Bible. I think it's under the seat. I left it there last week. We pull it out. We come running in. It flops open the Romans. <laughs> uh, you know, we, no preparation involved here. We haven't read. We're not prepared. We haven't prayed. But we're just here, just in the service. Uh, things are happening. Zoom, Zoom, announcements, worship, you know, thing goes by. Boom, we're out the door. And, and later in the week, there's, there's no reminiscing. There's no rec- recalling. There's no, show me your pictures. Now, I will say this to the credit of many here. That is not a description of many people in this church. There are many folks who are exactly the opposite. They make plans every week for this service. They make plans every time they get to there. They're in the Word. They're, they've made the mistake of thinking that we actually follow through the Bible in a certain way. And so they've read ahead, only to find out we're preaching out of Chronicles this morning. But they're, they're ready to go, even if we weren't on the same page with them. They get in covenant group, and, and they're the first ones to speak up. Oh, when this was said, I thought about this. Man, God really zinged me on this. Or the altar call was there. Man, what happened? Oh, man, I went up. God was so working in my life this week. And there is reminiscing. There is pictures with Nikki. You know? It's like, hey, what happened to you? And, oh, man, here's my picture. And there's talk about that. But, but let's be honest. If we're not in the place where, oh, it's coming out of our life, that doesn't mean... Okay, well, then to make sure you don't enjoy anything. Let's just lower everything in life. Don't enjoy a thing. If you're not going to over God, don't over anything. No, no, no. Let your O about God far exceed the O of your trip to Disney World or to a ball game or to whatever else you have the ability to enjoy, to, to mm, cheesecake, uh, whatever. 
let the O about, oh, taste and see that the Lord is. Don't you love the Bible uses these metaphors? Because the Bible knows, you know, awaiting me today may be my favorite dish. And I have the, the capacity, my taste buds are wired for pleasure. For me to be able to go, hmm. But, but yet God has ultimately wired that response for him. It's just a warm-up for, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's why I exist. To worship and experience God at a deep, impressionable level that far exceeds anything else that can be compared. So let us, let us reserve the word worship for true, heartfelt, overwhelming interaction with God. But let us not simply associate it with religious settings that quite often really aren't engaging us and we're really not in tune with it. We're not really squeaking out this O-type observation. John Stott goes on and says, For 11 chapters, Paul has been giving his comprehensive account of the Gospel. Now he stops out of breath. I love that thought. Analysis and argument must give way to adoration. Before Paul goes on to outline the practical implications of the gospel, he falls down before God and worships. Now, let me back us up a little bit. Go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. In just a moment, I'm going to show us that the absolute wrong set of ears to hear everything I'm going to say today is this set of ears. The Bible says we should go, oh, before God. Therefore, I'm a Christian, and that's what the Bible says. I should go, oh, before God. Okay, if you want to have an altar call, I'll come up and go, oh, before God. Okay, that is not the ears I'm speaking to this morning. Okay, that is not the way to apply what we're hearing today. So, don't feel any sense of obligation to oh. If you're not going, oh, right now in your life, it simply is indicating to you there is a problem somewhere else. Let's fix that. O will take care of itself. But, but let's, let's not escape conviction this morning. If my life lacks O. I need to fix something else. I don't need to just fake O. Like, oh, well, just put a smile on. It's Christianity. Make noise. Time to clap. All right. No, no. Let clapping come from somewhere. Let exuberant praise come from somewhere. Let, oh, the wisdom, the knowledge, the glory of God. Let it come from somewhere. Because for Paul, it started way back in Romans chapter 1. Listen, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, here's where Paul starts. Romans chapter 11 is, is it's the building of a wave that starts here in Romans chapter 1. And Paul says, I'm going to take some moments here and explain the gospel. And he begins right here. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In this gospel, the rightness of God and all that He does is revealed. And when you get that revelation, oh, will come as a result of the revelation 
that is in the gospel, revealing this God to us. But let me say this, because I know we've waded through some challenges in Romans. And there's been moments where some of what we have learned and observed that's clearly stated in Romans didn't meet our fancy, did it? You know, God can't be that way. God can't do it like that. Okay, let's, let's start here in Romans 1 and make sure we're on track. In the gospel, the rightness of God is revealed. In this gospel, God is never wrong. Paul is unpacking the gospel in Romans. Romans 1 through Romans 11 is the gospel. If you want the, the serious, detailed version of the gospel, that's the gospel. Okay? Now let's walk through some elements here of the gospel, because if we miss these things, we can't, we can't get, oh, we, we can't get it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Look at the first thing Paul goes to when he begins to talk about the gospel. And here I've labeled this in your notes, Dilemma Part 1. The gospel is solving a dilemma. Here is dilemma part one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God, my definition of the wrath of God is, the wrath of God is a holy God's right response to sin. Now, sin exists. Sin comes thrusting itself into the equation of human experience. God, in His perfection, is going to respond to sin in the equation. How should He respond? Should, should, should we impose upon God how He should respond? Should we inform God about how He should respond? Should we express to God, you know, God, I think, I think what, what I think God, my God would, this is what we're doing when we say those kind of things. We're informing God on how He should respond to sin. You know, the God that I know and worship would do what in response to sin? Put a disappointed look on his face, stare at the floor and go, is that what he would do? Would he simply inform us, I'm, I'm very displeased. You've really disappointed me. Is that what he would do? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. You know, one of the reasons why people don't arrive at O in Romans 11, you haven't been rescued from much. Just walking through life, you know, things were hard, you know, kind of had some problems, you know, I didn't feel good about who I was, self-esteem problem, and uh, some of my friends and had a financial problem. And, and then I got saved. Oh. That's about all the energy you got for O at that point. You didn't have that big a problem that God saved you from. He saved you from a few bumps and bruises in your life. Oh, well, some of those things were, were very serious. They affected me deeply. Uh, I don't doubt that. I mean, I know all of us live life, and life has edges on it and, it, and it cuts us. But can I tell you, Paul did not start there. His starting point for the gospel is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against your unrighteousness. That's why you need the gospel. You think life's been hard. You don't know what hard is. When I get that, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm not in that place. I'm in this place. I'm, okay, O is starting to take shape in me now. I'm beginning to have a sense of what O is really about. For Ephesians chapter 2, put some Ephesians thoughts here. Ephesians 2 verse 1 through 10 would be a consolidated thought about the gospel that contains really what Romans 1 through 11 goes into. Look at verse 3 here. 
in Ephesians 2. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. All of humanity was about to be exposed to the wrath of God, and you and I were children of wrath as well. Whether we knew that or not, that is the truth. But Paul knows that. Romans is what Romans is because Paul in the beginning knows everybody is underneath the sentence of wrath from God. Everybody is. So there's a huge dilemma here. Here's dilemma part two. Romans 1 verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And it goes on and explains in Romans chapter 1. So therefore, they are without excuse. There's, there's not a person who could have an excuse to get out from underneath the wrath of God. God, can, can you excuse me from, from the wrath of God sentence? Because, see, I, I just didn't understand this whole thing. They are without excuse. God has revealed enough to make every man guilty. And they are without excuse. That's a problem. Look what goes on from there. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Scoot over in chapter 3. This, this is an ultimate dilemma. All of humanity is unrighteous. But not just unrighteous, uninterested in ever becoming righteous, unmotivated to ever turn from the enslavement to sin. Remember the words the Bible uses about a person in the, in the condition of sin? Dead in your trespasses and sin. In bondage to sin. Blind. Enslaved. This is the terminology. So you don't have people standing in line to be saved here. This is a problem. Man is lost under the sentence of God's wrath and no one is interested. This is a problem. Look, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It says, both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And do you know why... Verses like this don't help us to go, oh, at the grace of God and God's gospel to save us. Because we really don't believe this verse. None is righteous. No one does good. Now, come on now. Tell me about the little old lady down the street now. Come on. Tell me about your aunt. Tell me about the most godly person I've ever known in my life. Now, come on. You mean to tell me? No one does good. We don't believe that. And so, therefore, there's, there's good going on out there. I mean, there's some good people. I know there's some rotten apples out there, but you know there's some good ones out there. I mean, look at the people helping out over there with the storm. There's people... Helping people out over there. No one does good. Okay, don't take issue with the fact that Keith Collins on September the 19th stood in front of you in church and said, no one does good. That's simply what the Bible says. Now the question for us is, do I believe it? See, because if I, if I don't believe that, I can't stand next to Paul in Romans chapter 11 and go, oh, I can't do it. Because I have other information that takes the edge off of what God has done. What God has done really kind of isn't all that amazing because, you know, there's some good people 
they'd have gotten there anyway. They'd have done some good stuff. God would have said, hey, you know what? You, you don't need much help at all. You're so much on your way. You do such good things. Maybe just a puff, puff from me and boom. You're in. You're righteous. Look at that. You were so close. Man, that, that's not biblical. No one is righteous. No one does good. See, this is fuel for, oh, what a God. Now, where does the rest of Romans go here? I'm going to try and fly us through some of these parts of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, is this a dilemma for anybody? I mean, here, what we have in the Bible is, and this is another thing I think when Paul gets to Romans 11, he goes, oh, wow, God is incredible. One of the things I think he's amazed at is the explanation by the Spirit about the law that's in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. Also here in Romans 3 and Romans 5, all throughout here he has clarified the law and what it is. And when he sees the role of the law, it's just another reason for him to step back and go, wow, what a God. But see, what man does, whether you call the law the Ten Commandments or you call the law, do the best you can through all the days of your life, through most of the time when you live. That's a form of the law, you know. Well, if you died today and you stood before God, would, would he let you in heaven? Well, you know, I, I think so. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I've, I've lived a pretty good life. I've tried to help people when I could. Oh, rungs on a ladder, right? You climbed how many of them? Four? And that's all you needed to climb. But isn't this interesting? That's not what the law is. For the work, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, in... in Modern Christianity and religious settings, whether it's Islam, whether it's denominational Christianity, what is being taught is the law is a ladder. Works of humankind, goodness, is a ladder by which you climb. And if you can just climb high enough, whatever high enough is, then God will accept you. But when I look in Romans, I get revealed to me the law is not a ladder. The law is a mirror. And if you'd like the mirror to be something you can try and climb, okay, let's make it a 10,000-foot greased mirror going straight up. Have at it. And you know what? When you start climbing and you stare yourself in the face while you climb and you can't get a hole on this thing and you can't get up and your foot is always on the ground, the mirror will show you that. It will show you. You have not gone anywhere, have you? You are not any closer to God now than when you started. That's what the mirror will do, and that's all it will do. And so here the law reveals we're in a real bind. We're down here, God's up there, and there ain't no way to get there. And that's, that's what Romans is teaching us. So we're building up now to this remedy. Look at the remedy here in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
by His grace as a gift. So what the mirror won't let us climb to the top of this thing to reach God, God comes by grace and reaches us and grabs a hold of us in this saving grace that comes to find us. Ephesians 2, you go back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And if that boasting is back here again in Romans chapter 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So here's this amazing thing. Man is in a dilemma. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. Everybody is guilty of unrighteousness. Therefore, everybody's about to get socked with the wrath of God. The mirror of God's law comes in and only reminds us that we have fallen short. There's no hope. There's no way out. Nobody can scale the wall to get out of this predicament that we're in. But Romans shows us that God has come by grace, sending His own Son. All we do is receive it by faith. And then there's Romans 4, talking about Abraham, explaining what faith is. Romans 5, how we're not under the sentence of condemnation. We're justified by God. So we move along through Romans. Now we get to this point in Romans chapter 8. Romans 6 and 7 really is about issues of the law, how to walk out Christianity, how to overcome the flesh. Romans chapter 8. God in his amazement obviously must know, even though you and I here that were saved by grace through faith, that somehow we're going to try and stick ourselves in this thing. We're going to somehow become the superintendents of salvation. We're going to be the ones in control of it. And God comes and teaches in Romans chapter 8, and he moves the focus off of man and his sinfulness and onto a sovereign God. And that's why we've had such a struggle in these doctrinal areas the last couple of chapters. Because the emphasis has gone from us and our sin, which basically the only contribution you and I are making in this equation is sin. That's what we're bringing. Romans 1 through 3 is not a pretty picture about man. It's what we're bringing to the party, though. We're bringing our sin. We're bringing our unwillingness. We're bringing the fact that there is no excuses. We've done what we wanted to do. But in Romans 8, the emphasis now shifts, and it gets on God. And these statements begin to get made about God. That, that God, God has subjected all the creation to futility in hope. God did that. In the hope that creation would reach out and respond to his grace. God is the one who's at work causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. God is at work doing that. God is the one who, who predestines and calls and justifies and glorifies. God is the one who's doing that. And who will separate us from the love of God, God's mighty love being so powerful, that what could possibly remove you and I from this equation of salvation that God has brought about? It's all about God. So then the, the head scratching starts in Romans 9. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this thing's all about God, it's based on God's word, well then... Did God's word fail? Because, you know, God chose Israel too. And look at the condition that they're in. No. God's word didn't fail. Now, remember, we're, we're walking towards O here. Paul is getting a revelation from God. Did God's word fail? No, it did not fail. It, was, it, it went off exactly as planned. God chose a nation, and then God chose a remnant, an elect group within that nation. He saved every one of them. Did his word fail? Not one bit. Every one of them is saved. Every one of them. Okay, well then i got another question then. And then that's the explanation about God saves according to his purpose in election, Romans 9. Well then, did God just dump Israel? Is he done with them? Just throw them on the side then? Is that what happened? That's what Peter talked about last week. 
Well, no, I'm saved, Paul says. I'm an Israelite. I'm saved. God is still saving those who are elect within Israel. He's still doing it. But check this out. What God has done is he has taken Israel's response, their responsible response to God. Remember, it says they were broken off because of their unbelief. Notice what it does not say. It does not say they were broken off because God didn't elect them. Right? Again, we're into the mystery here. Paul, standing and watching this, you're broken off because of your unbelief. But God, who is superintending, sovereignly superintending this whole gospel salvation, takes this breaking off, and through the breaking off of Israel, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and the whole world of the Gentiles now gets brought in. And then he looks back, and he says, you know what? Not only am I going to, through their rejection of the gospel, I'm going to save the world through this gospel, but when I'm done saving those Gentiles, Israel is going to become jealous, and they're going to believe too. This is the point at which Paul sets his pen down and goes, whoa. Paul has just had a mind-blowing experience from Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans 11, where God is superintending the gospel into saving humanity, a humanity that was uninterested in rebellion under the weight of his wrath that was yet to come and be revealed. Yet God has saved man, and God has used Israel, and God has had a scheme and a plan, and all of it went exactly according to plan. See, when you get a revelation about who God is and what he's done, now, now we can join Paul when he goes, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who has been his counselor? I mean, who could have told God to do this stuff? Can anybody, can you think for a moment, somebody would have said, hey, God, you know, looks like humanity is in a mess. But, you know, I've got a couple of ideas here about how you can save them. Who has been his counselor? Nobody could have come up with this idea but God. And, and, and who has first given to God that God would repay? Is God responding to man? Is that what we have here? No. You have a God who is sovereignly superintending the gospel to save man. Oh, that's where he ends here in Romans 11. With all glory, for, him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is a man who has seen something. Now, let me just say this because I put this in your, in your notes. Oh, is a response, not an act of obedience. Oh, is a response. Oh, is not, like I said earlier, okay, Christians should go, oh. So can we have an altar call now? All of you have not been going, oh, enough. We're going to come up and get some oh in here this morning. We're doing some oh. You, your oh is not loud enough. Come on, let's kick it up a notch. Oh, a little louder. Yep. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm convicted. My oh is not loud enough. Oh, yep. oh is a response to something. You don't have to teach it to somebody. When you see something, wow. Right? When you saw devastation from Hurricane Ivan, you looked at it. Nobody had to teach you to look at those pictures and go, wow. You know, there wasn't the caption underneath the picture didn't say, as you are viewing this, please draw in a deep breath, eyes bulging, and look again at the picture. You know, nobody had to do that to you. You just kind of like, wow, you call people in. I'm standing in the other room. Babe, come, come see this. Man, I, I, I'm wild by this thing. Any of y'all ever smelled uh, smelling salts? You know what smelling salts are? It's that stuff that when you like pass out and you're kind of, out of it unconscious, they break open this vial of stuff, 
It's sort of like sniffing ammonia, which I don't suggest anybody go home and do. But it's, it's, a, it's a violent thing. You sniff it, it comes in, and it's like it doesn't go into your lungs. It goes it, it, almost like a draw a straight line from your nose back to the back of your head. It, it's like somebody takes knives and just stabs them right through your nose, right into the back of your head, and your whole body just kind of gets this shimmer thing happening. It's like, oh, get that away. Nobody, you know, when you're in this semi-conscious condition, the person doesn't come up with a violin and read the instructions to you. I'm going to break open this pack. When it travels through your nostrils, begin to violently jerk with your body. Open your eyes, okay? You know, you don't have to do that with no information. It simply affects you. You respond. You know, when you travel to Hawaii or the Grand Canyon and you're standing in the the Swiss Alps, and you're looking over the sunset over a Hawaiian island. You know, you, you don't have to break out the little brochure and kind of respond to this. Different, you know, kind of, you know, uh, something about it, it's like, oh, come see this. Oh, right? It, oh is a response. It's not simply an act of obedience. And so where you and I are wrestling with a problem here, it's that, I don't see something in God that if I saw it, I would go, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So what you and I are needing, Matt, you can go ahead and tell them, what you and I are needing is, is a greater revelation about God. But remember what we said in the beginning. Worship, fascination with God is an acquired taste. It's not something you and I can just kind of say, well, you know, I mean, I come to church. I mean, I'm here, you know, I answer the altar call. I'm just kind of looking for God to, to owe me, you know. Well, you know, there's some elements that God will do something in your life that will leave you going, oh. But you know, when Paul gets to Romans 11, verse 33, it's Romans 1 through 11 that have caused him to go, oh. It's the Word of God that has revealed the God of the Word to him that caused him to go, oh. Now, in that moment, Paul is in great shape for the rest of Romans. Let me just warn us. The rest of Romans is heavy on application. It's big on don't do that, start doing that. Do that. Instead of doing that, you should be doing this. And you should relate to each other this way. And government should be involved in your life this way. It's all this stuff. And you know, if you don't have a sense of awe in you, I'll tell you right now, I'll prophesy this over you. It's really, it's a prediction. It's not a prophecy. You will think what we're about to teach when we get into that section is legalism, um, it's, you know, it's setting up rules. You know, Paul opens that whole section with, in view of the mercies of God, let's offer ourselves as living sacrifices. See, he's got no problem. I am consumed by God. I'm, I mean, just, if I can get breath back in me, I'm going to pick the pen back up here and write these words. Because I have seen something in Romans 1 through 11 that has left me going, oh, God, you want me, you have all of me. And there's a response of worship in that. Now, let me just tell you, to respond to God in this fashion, you and I need the right information. Today, folks, we'll leave here today and we'll spend part of the afternoon, many, spend part of the afternoon watching football games. There will be some oh going on in the football game. Things about this game will touch some of us deeply. <laughs> People who watched the LSU game got touched deeply yesterday. 
And some oh, she does an oh already just in response to the thought of that. My wife has come a long way in watching football games. Since she had boys, she determined that she would try and understand this concept a little bit better. But there still are moments where she just can't simply enter into my oh. She doesn't understand what's occurring. See, I've been watching football long enough. I am a well-studied football analysis person that I know when the quarterback, who she probably doesn't know who the quarterback is, but when the quarterback takes the ball, begins to run away from those big, fat, sweaty linemen who are chasing him, and manages to escape their grasp, stumbling, putting one hand on the ground, and balancing, and rolling out, and throwing all the way across the field. The ball is tipped. clock is running down to nothing. The guy catches it, breaks two tackles, dives into the end zone. See, I know in that moment to go, Oh! My wife knows to go, was that good? <laughs> it's a very different effect upon us. You know, last night watching the game, the LSU game, um, I'm calling her in because at this point it's the last few seconds, it's the last drive, throw the ball, bounces off the guy's chest, picked off by the other, other team. Right? My response, oh, a different kind of oh. Oh, jeez. It's over. It's over. My wife looks at the clock on the game and realizes there's still time left. It's like, no, it's still, it's got so many seconds left. It's like, no, you don't, you don't understand. It's over. <laughs> you, you don't have revelation here. Over. Thing called kneeling on the football. It's over. See, knowledge helps. Oh, doesn't it? There's some things that you and I just can't participate in unless there's a sense of knowing something about it. And, and that's where the Word of God, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word. And faith is the fertile ground for, oh, when I've heard, seen, observed, and I've encountered God in his word, I will step back from it and go, oh, oh, the depth, the riches, knowledge of God. Wow. Who can search him out? And that's going to affect me. Let's stand up together. Lord, you know better than we do that we do live in a time where thrills are found all over the place. But sadly, what we have found in you is, is a lot less thrill and a lot more boring. Heaven must look on in complete puzzlement how we could be awed by the things that we are awed about and not be awed about you. Lord, it reveals to us how little we have understood about who you are, what you have done, how we have benefited, how our life is forever changed, who it is that our, our lives are in his hands, that he is sovereignly superintending the moments of our existence so that there is assuredness of what the future will be for us. What an amazing God you are. Lord, our lack of response gives away our lack of understanding you. So Lord, this morning, Lord, we don't just cry out for more noise to come from our lives. We cry out for a heart that first says, Oh, have you seen this? 
Lord, that's where we want to find ourselves. We want to be informed in such a way that we stand in awe of you. We are overwhelmed at you. We know what it is to be interacting with you in the depths of our hearts. Lord, we know what it is to worship before you. Lord, would you make us that kind?